Welcome to the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As many of you are aware, we have a growing international audience of listeners from over 40 countries outside the United States. I am very happy and excited to be speaking with our first international pediatric emergency medicine specialist today. Dr. Ron Barat is the Director of Emergency Medicine at Schneider Children's Medical Center in Israel. Schneider Children's Medical Center is the only comprehensive tertiary care hospital of its kind in the country of Israel and in the Middle East, offering the full range of pediatric disciplines under one roof to all children. Ron received his medical degree from Ben-Gurion University of the Negev. He completed his internship at Mayer Hospital in Kfar Saba, and both his specialty in pediatrics and subspecialty in pediatric emergency medicine at Schneider Children's. In 2012, Ron undertook a two-year fellowship at the Hospital for Sick Kids in Toronto, Canada, which included a year in emergency medicine and a second year in point-of-care ultrasound. Ron, welcome to the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. Pleasure to have you. Thank you, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me and um, thrilled to be, take part of your amazing podcast. Great. Thank you for those kind words, Ron. Let's sort of do a little icebreaker that we do with all our guests. Ron, tell us, what's your favorite disease to take care of in the ED and why? Well, you know, initially I thought of saying uh, pulled elbow, but uh, I understand that this is uh, probably too easy of an answer. Um, so what I'd say is you mentioned that I was at SickKids and uh, trained at Point of Care Ultrasound. And I think probably the most dramatic cases were those that were with using Point of Care Ultrasound, we made a vast difference. And we actually had three different cases of children coming in, um, babies with altered level of consciousness, where we just put the transducer on their fontanel and we saw hydrocephalus and bleeds. And there were amazing cases because they're all babies that in all other circumstances, when you have a baby with altered level of consciousness, you started going back and forth and trying to understand what's happening here. But with the point of care ultrasound, in like three minutes, we knew exactly what the problem is. And the children in about 45 minutes from their presentation to the emergency department were already in the OR having a shunt placed um, after having a CT with and without contrast. I think that that is a relatively short time around, and it would not have been possible without point-of-care ultrasound. And I think that dramatic impact made are the favorite for me. So cases where the fact that we know have that tool that can really upgrade our treatment, that made that those the favorite cases. And, and these are babies that we saved, thank God. So um, yeah, so those are the best. Ron, what I'd like to talk to you about now is the current state of COVID in the state of Israel. Similar to the United States and many other countries, I think it's fair to say that Israel is at war with COVID. According to the Jerusalem Post, the last few days, your country has seen approximately 10,000 cases a day of COVID. And this is compared to the single digits of number of cases that you saw in early June. What is the difference? I think it's the Delta variant. It arrived in June. We're going to talk about the number of unvaccinated people are in Israel. We know with the Delta virus, less severe disease, 
I think the latest numbers I read, the majority of cases now are in children less than the age of 19. But Ron, talk to us current state. Currently, Israel has one of the highest per capita infection rates in the world this month. Talk to us again, a 10,000 foot view. What is the, the state of the art? What is going on right now with COVID in Israel? Well, you know, just to put it into perspective, Israel is a country of almost 10 million people, while the United States in comparison, roughly 330 million. So whatever happens in Israel, if you want to compare it to the United States, we need to multiply by 33. So the numbers that you just quoted, which are correct. um, So if we had 10,000 new cases every day in the last two or three days, the equivalent in the United States would be having 330,000 new cases each day. So that is the this you know this fourth wave that we are experiencing. And you're right that it's mainly the delta variant. But but the interesting thing is that because we have a very high rate of people that are immunized and even our elderly population already had three doses of the vaccine and we have our children from 12 years uh, upwards being immunized the trajectory of new cases is much steeper than the trajectory of severe cases or intubated patients or even deaths, which was not the case in the first or second wave. I mean, the first wave was really kind of small, but the second or third wave, because during the second wave and third wave, when we had more new cases, we had many more patients, uh, you know, severe patients debated. And now, while there is a rise uh, in, in the numbers, it's not at the same trajectory. So I think the immunizations are making a huge difference in what's happening. And part of the fact that we're experiencing the fourth wave, you know, part of it is human nature. Um, after having three waves and being confined and quarantined and unable, I, you know, we're human beings. And it's very difficult to stay, just even, you know, staying in Israel, not traveling abroad. And, and that's where we got the Delta variant, people traveling abroad, coming back to Israel, uh, bringing the Delta variant. And I, I think the main thing for, that we learned from the current situation is that I think we probably need to shift our paradigm of how are we treating this illness. And I think that while we thought we we're going to eliminate it. We thought we we're going to be able to quarantine it and make it disappear. Uh, I think these were, you know, just hopes. And I think what we need to have a, a mind shift now and what we really need to learn is how to live with COVID. And, um, and, and I think that's probably the main change that's happening now. Ron, let's shift to the vaccine. Israel has been said to be the world's leading vaccination program. And that goes back to the Pfizer company guaranteeing a sufficient supply of vaccine for the entire population of Israel. In exchange, Israel had to give clinical data on the results of the vaccine back to Pfizer. Some of our listeners may ask, why Israel? Well, Pfizer was looking for a country with a small population and a very good data collecting system. And Israel met those qualifications. So, Ron, talk to us early on when the vaccine was first rolled out and your experience uh, both as a physician in Israel and also with Schneider's Children's. Sure. So, I mean, everything you said is accurate. You know, it, it was partly a political decision. And, you know, without saying, you know, if you were 
pro or con government. Uh, I think as a citizen of Israel, the government made a great deal you know, in exchange for the huge data to be awarded with sufficient supply of vaccines is very important. I think that we really felt the once the vaccine was you know was administered and to as more and more of the population uh, was immunized, we, we really felt the difference. I mean, so the first wave we didn't have any vaccine and we really were quarantined and people couldn't you know, leave their homes. Second uh, wave as well. And then the third wave, as it started, you know, numbers started rising and the numbers of in- people getting immunized ro- rose, you know, has, has rose as well. And we really saw how and really felt how this pandemic is starting to get under control. Unfortunately, the Delta variant, is, uh, you know, it's mutated enough to still be able to infect page, uh, people. But like I mentioned earlier, people are still immunized to that degree that they are not severely sick. And so the burden on the health system is not that dramatic. And I think, I think that was our main concern. Our main concern were there was, you know, the reports and the images that we saw from the United States of hospitals being unable to accommodate all the, 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 all the patients that are coming and not having enough ventilating machines for uh, all the patients that needed a, you know, respiratory support. I mean, that, that was our main concern. We said, you know, it's not that we're concerned too much about COVID, but having that, in, you know, that virus all around Israel, all at once, having so many people, even if only 1% are going to be severely sick, you know, 1% of 10,000, sorry, of 10 million is 100,000 people all, you know, landing on top of your you know, your health system all at once. And that would, we wouldn't have places to treat, you know, heart attacks or strokes or, you know, your appendicitis or things like that. So, so I, we really felt that difference that the vaccinations have accomplished and we still feel it. I think, you know, even though, and, and I think this is very important to note. Yes, we are experiencing a fourth wave right now. Yes, there are many people that are being infected, new cases every day, but the amount of severe cases, patients needing to be intubated is not that high. And we, our health system can easily deal with that. And, and, and again, and that goes together with what we mentioned earlier, learning to live with COVID. Because if this is going to be like your common cold, you know, like the flu, I mean, the flu also kills, right? But it's a pretty rare event. And those, so if you have those patients that are severely infected with the flu, the system can handle when it can deal with that. And I think that's where we're trying to push coronavirus into, into that kind of uh, definition in, in uh, place. Great, Ron. Uh, again, using that phrase, living with COVID, let's quantitate the issue, okay? So Israel, like you mentioned, population a little over 9 million people. At least one dose of the vaccine has been given to approximately 6 million of those 9 million. Now remember, 2 million of the people of Israel are less than the age of 12. And we're going to talk about eligibility, but they're not eligible right now, today, for the vaccine. There may be more on that in the next few days or a week. That leaves 1 million people who have chosen not to be vaccinated. Interestingly, Ron, Israel has had about 1 million cases of COVID over the whole pandemic. Uh, I don't know if the, the 1 million matched the 1 million. Ron, are vaccines, we're going to talk about booster vaccines. Are vaccines available 24-7 uh, in the state of Israel? Uh, almost. So it's uh, definitely, you know, it's seven days a week. And now with, you know, the current fourth wave, um, they even have like 
happenings of uh, vaccinations and they're open until midnight or some places even uh, 2 uh, a.m. Uh, and I, you know, I'll remind you now in Israel, we're still in the summer vacation. Um, so they're taking advantage of this, having fun and so on. So, you know, at the end of, if you're going out for, you know, to walk in the park at the end of it, you know, come by, just, you know, get immunized. And I think uh, we had, I think for the third dose already almost a million or even a bit more than a million people that in the last, what, two weeks already got their third dose, uh, which are very nice numbers. Um, and, and and yes, you know, there's this debate. There's always the anti-vaxxers. Uh, it's always an issue. But we are, you can see that we're getting better, right? The, the system is getting better in distributing the vaccine to all populations everywhere. Israel is run by four HMOs. And there, you know, we, we have a law for public health and you, by law, everybody has to have an insurance with one of the HMOs, which honestly, at the end of the day, basically give you almost the same thing. And, and, and all the HMOs have taken the responsibility of immunizing their uh, patients. And you can see, um, you know, there are ads of physicians calling out for, to get immunized. You can see, um, you know, all kind of public personnel people uh, you know, if you're an ultra-Orthodox, you have rabbis. So in our populations, um, you can see there are all kind of town leaders that are calling for people to get immunized. So it's, you know, it's really the whole country is uh, really driven and trying to get people to get immunized. Like I said, I think it's the experience and the feeling that really what put it under control was the immunizations. And you know what? Between the third and fourth wave, we experienced about, I'd say, two months of sanity of, you know, of people, we walked around, people took off their masks, uh, we celebrated Independence Day, people went to the beaches. And I think that that experience of coming back to life was so strong that people realized, okay, if this is what we need to do, then we're going to go ahead and do it. So I think that was really the, the, the most convincing experience for people. Yeah, those are excellent points, Ron. Uh, here in the United States, uh, a lot of talk from the government, vaccine cards. Okay, you need to show proof of being vaccinated to go to work, go to a sporting event, go to a store. Let's talk colors, Ron. There's a green pass and a purple badge. Tell us what the green, tell us first of all, why the government instituted this and what is the green pass? So um, in an attempt to try to, have some order. Again, it's not a quarantine, but we're trying to minimize exposures. So we have the green pass and the green pass mainly says that if you are, uh, if you have been immunized with two doses, or if you have a record of having recovered from COVID, then you're allowed to go into, you know, go to work, go into a restaurant, go to a you know, theater and so on. The Purple Pass tries to put some order in how you operate. So let's say you're a shop in a mall. So they say for every seven square meters, you're allowed to have one person attend the shop. So they're trying really to make sure that you're not overcrowding, uh, you know, indoor places. And so, so like I said, technically the, the Green Pass says who can enter. Um, the Purple Pass says how many can according to the place itself. And then the Green Pass, in addition to what we said about being immunized or having been you know, recovered, you can also have a PCR test. Um, and if it's you know, negative, 
then you're cleared for 72 hours. You can have a rapid antigen test and that only lasts for 24 hours. So these are also other ways. So let's say now we're, you know, we're on vacation. I'm now on vacation. Um, and when we had to go to the hotel, my wife and myself, we've been immunized twice. Um, we also had, uh, we, we were infected with COVID after two immunizations, which by the way, it was ridiculous. I mean, I, I had a runny nose and I felt like a bit weak for two days. And, and that's it. It was like we had our vacation prolonged for another 10 days. Uh, so th that's how good the vaccine is. And um, I, we, I have three kids and my 17 year old uh, and my daughter, she's 15, both got two vaccines. So when we went to the hotel, we all showed our, you know, that, that, we, that we were either recovered or immunized. And my youngest son, who's 11 uh, and he's uneligible to get the vaccine. Now, so he got the rapid antigen, antigen test. And he was cleared to go into the hotel uh, with us. So that's technically how it works. Great. Ron, uh, related to the Green Pass, here in the States, actually New York City is financially incentivizing people. They're giving them $100 to get vaccinated. Many employers are giving workers half a day off paid to go and get vaccinated. And what I found interesting about the Green Pass, you mentioned those children 12 and above. They could either get the pass by being vaccinated, recovered from the disease, or a negative PCR. So in those that are not vaccinated, I'm sure there's a subgroup, and you talked about sometimes the ultra-Orthodox. If they're greater than 12, they need a negative PCR test or a blood test showing that they had the disease. And if they didn't get the vaccine, Israel is saying the family needs to foot the bill for that. Whereas if they're younger, not eligible for the vaccine, the Ministry of Health, the government, pays for that testing for those children. Your thoughts on that? You know, um, we're starting to, to, you know, we're starting to discuss territories which are a bit more ethical and less, you know, 100% medical. And, and, I, and I can understand both sides, honestly. Um, but I think that looking from the, you know, from the administration point of view, I think it makes sense. I mean, they're, they're saying we're not forcing anyone to be immunized. It's no, it's your choice. And if you don't want to be immunized, you know, it's your right. But if you expect us, you know, the, the, the whole public, everybody, all the, all the population to chip in and pay for your additional testing that is needed because you're unwilling to be immunized, I think that's not fair. Um, so I think it makes sense. Of course, if you know, if you, for a medical reason, uh, you cannot receive the vaccine, then, you know, for sure, yeah, then, 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 then it's the government's administration's responsibility to test you and, 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 and they should pay for it. Um, so, and, and I think, you know, they're not saying uh, that you're not allowed to go to school, you're not allowed to go to university, you're not, they're saying you can, you can do everything, but we just may, need to make sure that the chances are, you know, are lower that you're going to be, you know, a, a spreader of this thing. Now, on the other side, you know, on, on the other hand, people that are anti-vaxxers says, well, you know, we can see now that we have quite a lot of people that are immunized and still are either asymptomatic and have COVID and they're still spreading the disease or they're, you know, they are symptomatic and they still got COVID and, they, and they're spreading it, you know, you know, maybe for a shorter time because they had symptoms, but still. And so, and in that respect, it's really not fair to discriminate us because 
you know, it, it's not just us that uh, even if you're immunized, you still can have it. So, I mean, I for, for myself, I think it makes sense. I can understand some of the, you know, claims that people that are not immunized, what they say, but, it, you know, it's a judgment call at the end of the day. I, I, I believe it's fair. That's what they decided. I'm okay with it. And again, living with COVID, Ron. Ron, let's talk about something that we're just starting to hear about in the United States. And you've been going through this for the last month or so, and that is the booster shot or the third shot. Started in Israel July 30th, the first country to offer boosters, initially to the elderly population. Now, most recently, all people greater than the age of 30, and also all pregnant women, all healthcare workers, and teachers of all ages are eligible for the booster. And the most recent numbers I saw so far, remember, population a little over 9 million, 1.7 million booster shots have been given out to Israeli population. Talk to us about the booster and the role that has played in, like you said, mitigating this fourth wave. Right. So, and let's also remember that we said, you know, another 1.7 million booster uh, immunizations, and then you have already almost 1 million that have already been, you know, sick. So the number, you know, the number of immunized people are probably higher. And again, I think, you know, and this, I, I remember when, the, I remember the discussions before, before deciding upon the third booster. And I, we all, you know, we talked amongst ourselves and we said, you know, we don't envy uh, the administrators of, the, our, of our Ministry of Health because it, it's a difficult decision. I mean, being the first country in the world to say that we are going to give a booster without any solid evidence about the safety of it, we guessed and we thought it's going to be safe according to what we've seen up till now. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it is a kind of a gamble and you're gambling with people's lives here. So I think it was a very difficult decision. And I think I have a lot of respect for the people who made it. And I think, you know, they, they made the right choice. And you can see that I think the numbers, if you look at the numbers also, so people are a bit confused because they say that now in Israel, we have more people that are immunized that are sick, as opposed to people who are unimmunized that are sick. But that number is not Statistically, it's not correct because you need to look at the numbers per 100,000, right? Because you need to see, look at the rate. Because obviously, you're going to have more people that are sick that have been immunized because in general, you have more people that are immunized. So, But when you look at the numbers per 100,000, above the age of 60, the chances of, having, of being severely sick with COVID if you're not immunized is about 22 to 27 times if you're you know, immunized. And I think, I think that that's the main factor. So, and, and that's why the, having that third booster is so important, especially for the elderly population. And again, I think that is part of how we are going to get this thing under control and how we are going to live with it because people are going to get COVID. It's okay. Um, but if you're going to get COVID the way I had COVID, then you know you're going to be sick for a couple of days, and and you're going to go on with your life. And if you're not going to be immunized, then you might be severely sick. And 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 we had cases of you know people that are 30, 40, 50, uh, healthy people that have been very, 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 very sick. People that died, and um, people that complain of having COVID. You know, even if you survived COVID, the symptoms that people describe 
weeks and months after it are still, you know, are, 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 are significant. Um, people talk about cognitive delays and they talk about feeling weak and trouble breathing. And, and, and so, you know, COVID is not the flu. And, and maybe, maybe by having the population immunized, maybe we're going to be able to transform it into a kind of a flu-like illness. I see. The, uh, with the booster, uh, Pfizer just recently reported, again, data from Israel, that antibody levels, especially in the elderly, the ones that you talk to, have increased eight to tenfold right, skyrocket. Uh, based on where they were before. And I think you just shared with us the, the number of sick elderly patients that you're seeing who are triple vaccinated has dramatically decreased. That is correct. And I think the green pass, I think in the future on, uh, it's going to change to being triple vaccinated to have uh, the, the green pass is what I read. That, that, that's a good, you know, that by itself is a great question because are we going to try to have a green pass and, you know, a greener pass if you're triple immunized? I mean, what would be the minimum, minimum amount of immunizations? By the way, you know, uh, myself being a health worker, I'm over 40, and, but I, I was sick and I'm not eligible to get the, the booster because I was sick. So hmm. it might change down the road, but, you know, for right. now. I'm, I, I would hope and I think that your antibody levels are uh, approaching oh, what so. they would be if you did get the booster. I hope yeah. so. Uh, let's shift, Ron. It is end of August, early September. Uh, school time. Again, this is your forte. We're going to shift to pediatrics. So some schools, I think the ultra-Orthodox have started schools. The regular schools uh, may be starting in the next week or so, as they are here in the United States. Another thing, primarily in Israel, but also for Jewish people here in the United States, the month of September is full of Jewish holidays. So not only will children be around other children in school, but annually families get together, both grandparents, parents, and children. So let's talk about what is going on in Israel with school. First question, teachers, do they have to have the green pass to teach in school? Um, so teachers were supposed to have it. I think it's still, every, every municipality is having some kind of autonomy in defining whether they are able to enforce it or they are willing to say, you know, okay, just have the PCR tested uh, every three days. I, and I think that's the way the majority of places are going to be playing it. And, and, I mean, you're talking about schools, but it's also relevant for, you know, health institutions as well. Um, in my hospital, the majority of people are immunized, but there are some people that were, you know, afraid to be immunized. And now they're saying that, so now the hospital administration says, if you want to work in the hospital every three days, get your PCR, prove that you don't have. And I think the same goes for the teachers. It's the same train of thought. Great. And students now, today, the vaccine, it's 12 and above. So those students who are less than 12, uh, what I recently read is that parents will be performing tests on their children and then sending their children with a note to come to school with the test result, well, hopefully being negative. This has been changing back and forth. And, okay. and, so, and it's still in discussions. And we're, it, it, this thing is really tricky because we are not really sure about the reliability of the home testing kits of, you know, the technique that the parents are using. I mean, who knows if they're doing it correctly. So now initially they thought that the, these, you know, rapid tests um, are going to show that like a quarter of the population 
have been infected, how, how we should be much more reassured uh, by the, the numbers of people that are, the children that are actually are recovering or have recovered is you know, much higher. But then they saw that in other parts of the country, it was, you know, was, so they saw like in an ultra-Orthodox city, it was 24%, which was, you know, what they expected. But then in other places, it was between 10 and 16%. So they said, okay, so maybe this is not a great screening tool. And, um, but then you know, other people said, you know, 16 is still high. Is it high enough? They're going back and forth about it. Every day in the news, we hear either that it's going to be used or it's not going to be used. And you're getting into a lot of problems. You know, are you going to say that, uh, you know, your child is not allowed to come into school if he doesn't have that, you know, antigen test? Again, a lot of, you know, uh, people's rights that uh, we should, uh, you know, abide by. So uh, it's still, you know, in Israel, we kind of do things, you know, on a very short, short time frame. So... Uh, you know, it's the 25th of, of August, you know, we have lots of time until the 1st of September. We're going to go back and forth about this, I think, like twice a day uh, in the time coming. So I, I don't know what they're going to decide. I think um, that uh, probably they're going to have to do the PCR testing, which is probably more reliable. I mean, at what frequency? I don't know. Is it going to be once a week? Is it going to be twice a week? Um, we, we still need to wait and see. Okay, time will tell. A more simple question, Ron. Masks required in school, social distancing is going to happen this year in school? Uh, well, it's not that as of a simple question, right? Because um, social distancing is going to be partially implemented, okay? So they're going to have like these organic classes and they're not trying not to mix uh, classes with one another. I mean, usually at schools, you have a break, everybody goes out, everybody plays together. So they're kind of having these breaks each class at different times and they're going to play at different places and they're going to try to have as little as possible interaction between uh, pupils in different grades and even in, you know, in, in the same uh, age. Masks are being required. And in, 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 like we said, this is part of the purple uh, code. And they, in, when you're indoors, you have to have a mask on. These are children. It's not easy to have a, you know, a eight year old or a, uh, be all day with a mask on. Um, I know about from, you know, my, my son um, and then what he talks about what's, what's happening in his school and from my colleagues and friends. Uh, it's frustrating. You know, some children are able to understand and stay with a mask all day. Some are not, you know, even, even for some of the teachers, uh, it's difficult to stay with a mask all day, talking all day. So you know, if you're talking, you know, you know, by the book, yes, you're supposed to have masks on. Uh, the reality, I'm not really sure it's going to be totally implemented and enforced. Understood. Another thing I read, Ron, I want to ask your input. Will Israel be offering the vaccine to children in school? So those 12 and above who are eligible, hopefully they've gotten it, but there must be a subset that's not. And I heard on the horizon that number, as far as eligibility, is going to go down to maybe five years of age as soon as you and Pfizer decide that that lower age limit is now eligible for the vaccine. So will they be offering the vaccine in school? Um, again, well, again, this is a political question. So the minister of education is, well, she's not an anti-vaxxer, um, but she is really trying to separate the schools from this, you know, mandatory vaccination. 
Um, I mean, she is immunized by herself, but she's but she's really cautious, and she's and, and you know, it's I guess it's a it's, it's a good thing to have somebody with a different point of view. That even if you if you're right, it's still you know you need to think again about whatever you're doing. So that's okay. Um, and but I think at the end of the day, uh, the majority of the government members um, are pushing towards that uh, that uh, vaccine in Israel. Um, the whole vaccination system, not just COVID, uh, is uh, governed by, you know, by the government. So your regular Hep B, uh, the MMRV, uh, Prevnar, all of those are given in designated care centers for children. And when you need your immunizations for the tetanus and uh, even uh, for papilloma and, and so on and so on, these are given within schools. So Giving vaccinations within schools is, you know, it's happening today as well. So I think it's not going to be a major change in what's happening when they're going to add COVID to these immunizations. Uh, they're even giving flu shots at school. So again, if somebody doesn't want it, they're always, you know, they have the option not to take it. But I think once we decide that children, uh, you know, below the age of 12, five and above are eligible for the vaccine, our system, as it is today, knows how to deliver immunizations. It's going to be a matter of adding another one. So I, I don't think it's going to be a big deal. And it's going to be a more efficient way, for sure, to make sure that as many people as possible are going to be immunized. Great. And again, I think that's a benefit of a national health system that you've described uh, for our listeners. Ron, let's, let's shift gears uh, as we conclude and talk about your experience as the head of the Department of Emergency Medicine at Schneider Children's Medical Center. What has been your experience during the pandemic with COVID in the ED and also in the hospital? Oh, wow. I, you know, I started my term as director on the 1st of April, 2020. It sounds like a joke. It's not. April Fool's. Yeah, exactly. April, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's like about a week, I think, or two weeks into the first wave. And I always said that, you know, I don't really know what it is to run a normal department because all I did is run the department during this pandemic. And we had to adapt. We had to adapt on an almost daily basis because initially we didn't, we were learning every day what we're dealing with. So when we worked during the first wave, we separated all the hospital's personnel into two teams. We had a blue team and we had a white team and each team worked for 48 hours. They were divided between themselves, the shifts. And every time the blue team changed with the white team, they change without physically uh, meeting each other. So we had this whole protocol of how the blue team would go into, you know, the back rooms, people would come in and clean the whole, the ED and the stations. And then the white team would come in and they would hand over patients through a video call and they would stay in the stations and not go anywhere else until the blue team left. And we had to realize exactly what infection control measures we need to take. And we had to write whole new protocols of, how do you perform a resuscitation for somebody with COVID? So somebody that has COVID, but with respiratory symptoms or without respiratory symptoms, what happens to the trauma bay if you have a patient in there and they later on you find out that he had COVID? So how do you sterilize this whole room? So what should we put in the room? And we had, and we changed a lot of how we work. And in the past, you know, we had sheets in the room. So we took the sheets out of the room because, you know, you don't want them, somebody to be exposed and, so many details. And so all of these things, they, they put a lot of, you know, burden and, you know, stress on the team and 
and on the personnel. We didn't have many patients because, you know, during the first wave or second, we, miraculously, we, we didn't see anybody. So it wasn't the COVID that, you know, that made our lives, our lives difficult. It was being prepared for COVID. And then during the second and third wave, when we saw more and more patients, what we realized is that we saw more patients that were sick and also had COVID as opposed to patients that were sick because of COVID. So we had patients with appendicitis that also had COVID. We saw patients that broke their hand and also had COVID. We saw that came in that had a hematocolpus and also had COVID. So it's not the COVID uh, which was the problem as so much as, um, as, as the, the control in, infection control measures that we had to take. And then during the, I'd say, middle of second and maybe beginning of third, that's when some cases started, you know, popping up MISC cases. So, and then, and we right. had the reports already coming in from England. Um, and it was like about two weeks later that we started seeing the, you know, the first few cases. And it, it, well, it was all very confusing because then you said, okay, so when should we consider uh, a patient having the chances of having this, you know, multi-inflammatory syndrome? I remember the first cases, we were surprised that we said, you know, wow, he, he, they meet the criteria. You know, it's a new thing. And then we said, you know, you just think about it as Kawasaki. And they're, okay, well, Kawasaki, we know. And that helped us even uh, our train of thought to, to, to understand how to look for it. Um, and then, and, and, you know, and, and then everything looked like MISC uh, and everything looked like COVID, but almost nothing was COVID and almost nothing was MISC. I think, you know, main thing that we learned from this whole period, how humble we should be. And, you know, we realized how much we just don't know. Um, you know, we thought that, well, I was taught that RSV comes in November and disappears in March. And, you know, we're now at the end of August and uh, we still see, they were still seeing the last cases of RSV that started in May. How did this happen? Nobody knows. The last year and a half, what COVID did, it kind of shook our world upside down. Um, every convention and everything that we knew for certain and for sure that this is how it is, um, <laughs> kind of got, got wiped out. And maybe, you know, for us in, emer in the emergency department, I think we are probably the most adaptable of all specialties. Whatever changes, whatever happens, whatever you throw at us, we need to know how to respond. And I think in that respect, we probably were the best suited to, to, to be the front line. So whatever happened, we came with protocols within days and we learned how to deal with it. But it's, it's, it's not the children sick with COVID that made our lives difficult and increased our burden of work. It's dealing with COVID and infection measures and with this whole new season of, you know, winter viruses in May and June. I, I think that's the main difference that we experienced. Ron, it's truly remarkable that your experience at Schneider Children's in the ER mimics what we have seen here during the pandemic. Uh, we did do a prior podcast on MISC, and we spoke with Josh Rocker, who's the medical director at Cone Children's Medical Center. And similar to you, Ron, he was seeing the first cases of MISC in the United States soon after England and Italy were reporting their cases. And uh, again, it was writing protocols on the fly, changing them from one day to another. But I think you hit the nail on the head, Ron. 
practicing in an era where we see a new disease like COVID and we see a complication like MISC that affects children and being able to successfully treat those children, many of them who required ICU care, it is very humble uh, to be a pediatric emergency medicine physician during this pandemic. So Ron, let me, let's conclude your final thoughts. Lessons learned about COVID in Israel. What would you like to leave with our listeners? Well, like I said, first of all, um, how humble we should be. We should realize how much we just don't know. And once we realize that, we need to be able to think and rethink and challenge ourselves every day. And any assumption that we have, uh, we need to, we should be very careful not to dismiss anybody who says something differently. Even the treatment for COVID has changed throughout uh, the months of this uh, pandemic, and it's changing still. I think these are the main take-home messages that I got from this pandemic. In pediatrics specifically, I think that I don't feel that COVID is very serious infection for children, and I emphasize for children. I think we need to take into account how children might infect adults, and that is a major consideration. I think the uh, MISC is, uh, you know, it's our new Kawasaki, and uh, we should really be alert to that. And if when we haven't even talked about, um, you know, side effects of the vaccinations, um, you know, all the perimyocarditis cases that we've seen. So there's still so much to learn from all this time. And um, I tell my residents and my fellows, I'm kind of curious to see how, how medical textbooks are going to look like in 10 years. How are they, you know, in the retrospect, how, what they're going to be writing about this time, having the hindsight of understanding really what, you know, what happened. You just have to wait and see. Those are awesome take-home points. And again, Ron, on behalf of the CHOP Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast team, I want to thank you, Dr. Ron Barant, Director of Emergency Medicine at Schneider Children's Medical Center, for joining us on the podcast and giving us the update from the state of Israel on COVID. Thank you, Ron. Bob, thank you so much. It really was a pleasure. I feel really honored. <laughs>